chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, as we're continuing on in the series here, moving to 1 Samuel, let us pray. Father, give us hearts to see your word and to trust you. Father, we need you in all things. We're amazed by your grace. And Father, we don't want to just intellectually agree with your word and what you tell us. We want it to embed itself deep into our hearts to bear forth fruit for your glory. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, last week I had mentioned that one of the things that I've been personally dealing with was conviction with self-control and that one of the things was on that self-control was YouTube. Now, you, many of you may have wondered, what is it that I'm watching on YouTube? Well, there's a lot of different things, um, kind of odd things. I'll, I'll watch farming things for some bizarre reason. Now, if electricity went out and I had to farm, I would totally die. But yet I find it very fascinating sometimes these people who can do all these amazing things that are completely not me. And... Um, I don't know, sometimes it inspires me to go outside to garden, and then, you know, July hits, and it's like, why bother? So, um, but so there's that, and that's kind of an odd thing. But another thing, and actually the thing that actually um, I will look at more and spend more time and kind of get trapped down the rabbit hole is new technology that's coming out. I'll watch out this new technology or this new rumors or this new advanced technology that's coming out, and I'll... And, and this is one of the things that I, that I felt the most conviction on because what happens is I'll watch that and I'll just be so amazed by it, so enthralled by it and say, wow, that is so cool. And I'll look at that and I think, oh man, when, I, if I, when that comes out and I get that, I, I can just begin to see myself using this new technology. And you know, sometimes it's for relaxation, but for most of the time I begin looking at this new technology, whether it's a software or a hardware, or a new app or, or something like that, and, and I'll think, wow, you know what? This will really help me do my job better. And I'll just imagine myself doing my job so much better. And it's easy for me to, to kind of sanctify it in that regard because my job, of course, is a pastor. And I imagine myself, oh, just think of how I'll be able to use this in Bible study. Or think, let me think of how organized I will be within here. And I, and I look at that and I just picture that this is going to be the thing, the technology, the app, the productivity system, whatever it may be that will give me a peace like a river, enable me to become so fantastically productive that it'll just, I'll be wondering, people will just be amazed at all the things that I was been able to do and my life will be so much easier because of it. I'll be so much more happier in my productivity. It'll remove all the drudgery of work, right? Well, that's the, the subtle siren call of so much of these technologies that capture our heart but yet they haven't really lived up to it. As a staff, we're reading a book by Andy Crouch called, um, actually, I can't remember at the moment what the title of the book is. <laughs> Doesn't really matter. It's, it's an okay book. But one of the things that he brings up is how when we look at some of the technology that we have today, things like a Roomba, a vacuum that vacuums the floor by itself at night. Things like a dishwasher, things that you put in and actually does a far better job of washing your dishes than your teenagers do, right? Things like, yeah, I mean, maybe your teenagers are better than mine, but I doubt it. 
Um, you know, and we're right now, we're even having this big discussion about AI. And where it's writing essays and is writing things for college students, which I find very, very frightening as we look in this. But one of the things that he, he makes the argument in pointing this out, if we were to look at all these inventions that we have, this technology that we use today, if we were to show it you know, 50, 80 years ago to our great-great-grandparents, they would look at that and just be amazed and think, wow, you don't have to vacuum your floor. You don't have to spend all this time doing the dishes. You must live a life of pure luxury and ease. But yet for us, as we look at that today, what we think is this, that's actually boring. That's yesterday's technology. Surely there's going to be something else that comes out down in the pike that that will be what really makes house cleaning a lot easier. That is what will make everything so much easier for us to have. And the truth is, as Andy Crouch makes the point, that while certainly there will be new technology, but it won't nearly be as life-changing as we think it is. It will eventually become boring because it is not ever going to satisfy what we want it to be. We look to it in hope. We look to it for all kinds of promise. But ultimately, we look for it in places to solve problems that it never can solve. And we see this in today's world. Despite all of our great and amazing technologies, we're incredibly stressed out. We're incredibly anxious. And in fact, many of you may have been following this new report, this very discouraging report about teenage girls in particular that are struggling with anxiety and depression. And yet we would acknowledge that your teenager, whether it's a girl or a boy, is probably far more tech-savvy than you are. But yet there's, feel, there's this feelings of anxiety that generations hasn't, been feel, hasn't felt in maybe ever. This, this whole spirit of the age that is anxious and dispirited. So maybe there's something else. We continue to look for something to solve these problems. Surely something in our human ingenuity, our technology, our understanding of science. And so we love to have these things. And so in YouTube, you can find all these videos, how to hack your nervous system, how to hack your brain, how to do this. And so maybe technology, but if we're, our, our understanding of our biology will do this, then maybe we'll become We'll be able to turn ourselves and reprogram ourselves and all this or that. And yet we are still more anxious and depressed and discouraged. We need something else to give us hope. And that really addresses the heart of what we're looking at today in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, the people are looking for a hope, a place of security, a place of shalom. The Bible gives us this word of shalom, and a very lazy translation of shalom might be peace, but it's far richer than just our sometimes what we call an English version of peace. It's this place of wholeness, this sense of a way of being that in essence you are always made to be, in which all things are right. Yes, it is peace, but it is a complete, not just absence of hostility between you and somebody else, but absence of hostility in the entire world. 
within the world and even within ourselves, and most especially an absence of hostility between us and our creator. That is shalom. We think we can bring in technology. We think we can bring in new ideas, our understandings and our science to bring in this shalom. And certainly that is one of the things that you'll see many of our uh, quote-unquote Ivy League thinkers, guys like Steven Pinker who wrote the book Enlightenment Now, or this other, he's a Jewish scholar, I'm not even going to try to say his name because I'm not going to butcher it, but he wrote the book Homo Sapiens. This idea that through our technology, through our enlightenment, will bring hope. In essence, it's a new thing that we would say, a new idea, a new concept, but really it's very, very, very old. And that's one of the amazing things as we've been looking at 1 Samuel is though it is thousands of years ago, the very heart by which we are dealing with is the same heart, the same rebellion, the same longings. And so we pick up the story now in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1. Now, if we remember from chapter 7, Samuel had, in essence, led the people into a revival. And so we talked last week about what true repentance looks like. And we saw that there was peace that came in, peace with the Philistines, peace with the Amorites. And so now about 20 years has taken place between then and now. And so the once young leader, Samuel, is now an older leader. And it says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, ding, 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 ding. Right there, something should catch our eye. He made his sons judges over Israel. Now, for one, for one thing, thing, God is the one who appoints prophets and the one who appoints judges. Now, they're to maybe appoint judges over towns, the kind of local rulers, elders. But the fact that he made his own sons judges, there's a certain dynastic ambition that seems to be high behind Samuel right there. Something right there seems a little bit, nothing, nothing terribly wrong, but already in the first verse we see something a bit odd. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Now, if we were to look, we didn't really cover this last week, but Samuel had developed, a, in essence, a circuit in which he was able to go through and judge most of Israel. Now, he was a lot more in the northern side than he was on the southern side. And Beersheba, where he placed his sons, was in the far most southern place in, 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 in Judea. And so this was about as far south as you can go. And it was very much in the outskirts of, of civilization. And so Beersheba itself was really, you know, at least scholars tell us, was probably only about 200 people. So that right there is a little bit interesting. He sent them as about as far away as you can go into the south. And two judges into this really kind of backwater community of only about 200 people. Okay, well, that's interesting. Verse 3, yet his sons did not walk in his ways. Uh-oh. But they turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. And so right there you see, uh-oh, this is 
new page, same story. Just as Eli's sons perverted worship by taking what they wanted, perverting justice, we see now Samuel's sons are doing the same thing. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. Ramah, of course, is where he had made his base of operations, so to speak. And so all the elders. The last time we saw elders was in chapter 5, when the elders had um, decided, after their loss to the Philistines, the elders in their wisdom said, Huh, this seems wrong that we lost to the Philistines. What should we do? And instead of leading the people into repentance, he said, let's bring out the ark. Let's take the ark. Surely we'll use the ark as almost this very glorious magic rabbit's foot that certainly God will give us victory in this. And and of course, instead, it actually led to an enormous slaughter. And so they already don't have the best track record. It says, they came together to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Behold, you're old. That's the way to start a conversation. Behold, you're old. Nobody's doing that to me yet, but my day's coming. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Okay, well, that's true. He is old and his sons don't walk in his ways. And yet, he seems to have tried to be establishing this dynasty, a prophet and judge. They're saying, "Mm, this isn't going to work. But look at their solution. He says, now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, the first thing you can see right here is they don't ask, hey, you know, maybe we should get a king. They actually, they command, this is an imperative, this is a command, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, right off the bat, ding, 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 we've been following the story beginning back in Judges, we should already be a little bit brussled at this and perhaps a little bit confused. You see, to this point, Israel didn't have a king. They just had judges that God would appoint to lead them during times of crisis. And so they're asking for a king, like all the nations. Now, the judges in the past, there have been other judges, such as Gideon, for example, who God had appointed as a judge for a time, and the people wanted to make him a king. And Gideon's response was, no, I'm not going to be your king, nor will any of my children be your king. Why? Because God is our king. And so it has set that up, and so they were living in this this theocracy that did not have a king, but would have appointed judges to come in. Now within that, what that meant is a few things. Number one, with the absence of a king and a centralized government, that meant that there was no standing army. There is no standing way of taxation for the overall people. Yes, there was the sacrificial system that showed how to provide for the Levites, for example. But you couldn't look and say, hey, this is the army of Israel during a time of peace. There was no, uh, you know, there was no, our defer- uh, 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 yeah, I'm, I can't remember the word, so we're just going to move on. But there's this no sense that we're going to win by basically showing how imposing we are. 
so that no enemy is going to try to attack us. Because, well, look at, the, look at the Israelite army. All of their security would come from as the Philistines saw the recognition that the God of Israel was the one who protected their people. And look what that God of Israel did to Egypt. Look what that God of Israel did to the Philistines. No, look at how many chariots Israel has. Don't look how powerful their military is, which is one of the key ways of the, the king. And the king was also to ensure social justice. Well, that's supposed to happen. There is supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of people living out the law. And if you're to break into the law, down into its most simple part is loving God and loving people, loving your neighbor. But the people here said they want a king. Now, what's interesting is if we were to go back into uh, the Deuteronomic covenant, there was a foretelling that God would bring a king. And so God does show out. There is going to be provisions, but number one, it's a king that God would bring about. And number two, this king would be vastly different than the king of the nations. And so they're saying, no, 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 it's our timing. We want this king now, but we specifically want this king to be a king who looks like, and it's very explicit here, like all the nations. Okay, so we see verse 6, Samuel responds, but this thing displeased Samuel. And literally, it's this thing was evil. This was a great evil to Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. In other words, we're not happy with the way judging is going now. We want a king. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now, notice what they're doing here. This is a very complex thing because they're not saying we want to reject God. If you go to him and say, well, so you don't want God to be your God anymore? No, we just want a king. They're going to the prophet, Samuel. They're saying, hey, we want you to appoint us a king. So you would talk to them and they would say, look, we're still wanting to be good God-fearing people. We just want to look like the rest of the nations. We just want to look like everybody else around us. We, want to, we look in the way they have peace and security through their standing armies. That looks like a good idea to me. So let's have God, you give us what we want to look like everybody else. That, they weren't supposed to look like everybody else. They were supposed to be above the nations, not like the nations. The nations were supposed to look at them and say, that is where the true God is. Look at the way they bring true shalom as they worship the living God, as God is in their midst. Not them looking like the rest of the nations and say, hey, what they have is better than what we have. Now, you might look at this and we can say, well, you know, they got a point. I mean, who's going to judge them? Samuel's sons are corrupt. You, we can't really blame them for not wanting these corrupt judges over them. And certainly that's how they begin. But when you begin to push into their argument, you begin to see that that's really just the excuse that isn't the heart behind what they really 
want. And so if we were to skip ahead to verse 19, and, and we'll come back to this to see it's in its context, we see the real reason, what's really going on behind them. In verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, once again, that we may also be like all the nations. We want to be like them. Well, what does that look like? And that our king may judge us. So there's two things. Judge. We need somebody who can be arbitrary over us. But notice the second thing. And go out before us and fight our battles. So who is it they're wanting to fight their battles? The king, not Yahweh. They're saying we will feel more secure if we have a king who has a standing army to go out and fight our battles. You see, what we're going to find, they've been in this 20 years of peace between the Amorites and the Philistines, but yet we're, we're going to see, as we, we're introduced to the kingship of Saul, the Philistines are starting to rumble there's an Amorite threat in the background. So in other words, they're saying, we're feeling a lot of insecurities here. We'll, feel, we'll have a whole lot more peace if we have a king to protect us, not God. We'll still worship God. That's a good thing. We, we, we don't want to deny God, but you know, things will look a little bit better if we do it just the way the world does it. We find their peace in the way they want to find peace. Go back up to verse 7. This is God's response. And I find this so fascinating. This is so fascinating. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I, I find this so fascinating because... What is God's response immediately? Yeah, give them what they want. Samuel is hot. Samuel is emotional about this. It said it was this great evil that was done to him. And God says, give them what they want. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. He's not surprised at all by the sinfulness of their heart. He's not taken back by it. And in fact, in Samuel, as Samuel is so hot... God is kind of telling Samuel, get a little perspective, dude. This isn't about you. It's about me. It's about what the people are doing to me. You're holding on to your agenda. This isn't about you. This is about me. This is about God. Verse 8. According to all the deeds that they have done... From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. In other words, the fruit of their stubborn in this heart is it's, it's bringing itself out. Now then, obey their voice. So in other words, he's saying, okay, you're going to do this. This is what's going to happen. He knows what tomorrow holds. He knows the fruit of their sinfulness. Do it. But he gives them, he says this, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So in other words, he's saying, this is going to happen. 
Just kind of give them, it's like, hey, this is what, give them a warning. They're going to want it still. Just give them a warning. Tell them what's in store for them coming up. He doesn't say manipulate them. He just says, just tell them. So in other words, he's got the great, I told you so. I warned you, this is what's going to happen. He knows, he knows the future that's in there. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. Now, what was this that he told them? Verse 11. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and they will be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. So in other words, he's going to say, Okay, you find this whole glorious thing, this whole standing army thing glorious? It's going to come from your sons. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and, com and commanders of fifties. And some will plow the ground and reap his harvest. So in other words, hey, you know how today most of what you get goes either to you or to the sacrificial system? Some of that's going to have to go to support the kingdom. And to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots, verse 13. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and the olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and, but notice this, and you shall be his slaves. God told him, hey, warn him what's going to happen. And Samuel moves into it with gusto. Hey, let me paint this picture before you here. Verse 18. And this is where I think he goes too far. Because I don't think the Lord told him to say this. I don't see any evidence of it. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, admittedly, this is controversial. Some, scholar, some scholars agree with this, some do not. I happen to be in the camp that agrees with this. I think Samuel is going overboard here. I think he's trying to hold on to what he's had. He's trying to talk them out of this. And I think he goes too far with this statement because, number one, we do see evidence where they cry out to the Lord and the Lord answers them. God isn't going to abandon his people because they chose a king. Certainly, there's going to be consequences, severe consequences because of this. But ultimately, he will end up raising a king for them to say, hey, here's a king after my own heart. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, so that we may be like the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and find our battles. Okay, we've already covered this. So what is Samuel's response? Now keep in mind, the Lord's already told him twice. Do what the people tell you. Just give him a king. 
And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to him, said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. So Samuel's far more put out than God is. God knows their heart. He's not surprised. He also knows the future. He knows what he's going to do for them. Samuel does not. So what has God told Samuel? Obey them, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. He dismissed them. I think he's stalling. God had told him to appoint a king, and what does he do? He sends him away. Not every scholar agrees with that. I happen to. But where do we look at this? How do we understand this? Most of us are not yelling out, appoint us a king. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. But most of us are actually saying we want less government a lot of times. But yet within us, what we do see is constantly within us, there is a culture that is telling us this is where you can find your shalom. And we are all too happy, though we never want to necessarily leave our faith, we're all too happy to adopt what the culture says. This is its vision of success. This is its vision of where you can find peace and happiness through achieving all of your financial dreams, through through achieving the high-powered job that everybody finds to be so impressive through winning in politics by having your political system being the one who wins. And all behind it, it is driven by this fear. Actually, as much as it says it is about hope, it is really about fear. If you don't get what you want, if you don't get what our culture says is successful and the place of peace, you're going to miss out. It is this fear of missing out that undergirds it and just drives it. If you don't get the perfect job, you're going to be regretful. If you don't have as much money in retirement as you feel like you need, you're going to to be in a world of hurt. You're not going to have peace. If you miss out on the latest technology, the newest iPhone, you're going to be a loser. And this is especially true in our capitalistic society. We love for the the capitalism of our society to just bombard us with advertisements. This technology will give us peace. It just, and what is the common phrase? I don't think they say it that much anymore, but for a while, a common phrase was, Apple is releasing this new technology, so just shut up and take my money already, right? We've got to have this newest technology, and that, oh, my friends, that just beats into my heart. And we love to baptize it. Oh, look at all we'll be able to do for the kingdom with this technology. When in reality, we'll just watch YouTube videos and Netflix. But we have all these aspirational dreams, right? Technology, science, something will save us. But at the heart of what our culture really tells us is a place of shalom, is that not that you need to find yourself a different king, but you need to make yourself king. If you can have everything your way, and that's the real promise of technology, 
Through this technology, you will be able to create the world that you specifically want for you. It will become so individualized, so personal. Why would you have to compromise and live life the way somebody else wants you to? This technology enables you to live and customize your whole reality. More personalized entertainment. More personalized technology. And so we become, in essence, living avatars, thinking we can control our world. Surely that's the way of peace. At least that's the way culture tells us. But it's not. It is not the way of peace. The Bible offers us something profoundly different and radical. It says that shalom doesn't come from us becoming kings or the siren uh, calls of the world. But it says there is a place of peace that comes from Christ as our king. And so we see the greatest sermon ever preached by our Lord. It begins with this call to blessedness. Is it the blessed are those who have the greatest technology, the greatest money? No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. This is the place of shalom and the peace of God's people when Christ is our king. And what happens within us, in it, rather than trusting in the newest technology, the newest science, the newest, just like the people of, of Israel, they say, hey, we want a king to give us stability or we want technology to give us stability. We have the greatest promise in that same servant. What does he say? Trust in a sovereign God for tomorrow. The one who takes care of the lilies and the sparrows. He's the one who's got your tomorrow in his hands. That is the place of security and shalom. You can lose your iPhone. Somebody can break into it. You can lose your job. We all know how unstable the market can be at times. That can go kaput. Who knows what housing prices are going to be, but the sovereign God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. This is the place of shalom and of peace. But notice as well what Samuel tells him, by making another king, what's going to happen? You'll become their slaves. You'll become their slaves. And so much of when we want something outside of God to be our place of security, we become slaves to it because we're afraid we're going to lose it or we're afraid we have to maintain it. We're constantly enslaved to it. And that's, that's one of the great uh, just diabolical moves of all idolatry. It promises freedom, but what it gives is nothing but enslavement. I know I've used this illustration before, but take pornography. What is the promise? It will fulfill all of your sexual desires. It'll give you what you want. It'll give you the peace, the shalom you want. But what does it do? It actually imprisons you. It forces you to be its slave. Same thing with money. 
Oh, if we can just get this house, we will have peace, we'll have shalom. But when it becomes our end all, it eventually, it eventually enslaves us. But in Christ, what do we see? He sets us free. He gives us an identity that we don't have to maintain, but is kept by him. A future that is secure in him. A treasure in heaven kept by him. So who the son of man sets free is free indeed. We see a king who not, doesn't take from us like this king who says we're going to take this and that, but rather a king who emptied himself of glory and took upon himself human flesh, took upon himself the shame of the cross so that he might give us shalom, might give us a dignity. Rather than making us slaves in this great transaction, he made us heirs to the king. So my friends, this is what God offers us. Nothing trendy. In fact, this has been the offer that has been the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is the same offer that has been given to us for 2,000 years. And for 2,000 years, people are saying, this is not going to work. This is silly. But it has, in fact, this power, this gospel, this freedom that comes for us in Christ by believing simply and trusting in him. It has broken the back of empires and cultures and has made the foolishness of whatever was wise in that day to, to just evaporate. The show is self-consistent, beautiful, true, and good. That's the shalom of the true king. So my question and my call for you today, my friends, is this. What is your appetites for? What are you long for? Because what Christ has for you is better than what the world can offer. He poured himself out. And we celebrate that today in our communion. We celebrate that reality. It seems like such a simple meal by which we come to. How could we be satisfied by a simple meal of bread and cup. But yet it symbolizes the great treasure that we have in Christ. One that we don't have to earn, but one that was given to us at great cost by our Savior, Jesus Christ. That he gave us his body and his blood. And that we take it upon ourselves and in doing so, by receiving him, not these elements, but by receiving Christ by faith, which these elements represent. We have true peace, shalom, all that our hearts long for. In this meal that we find in Christ, we are satisfied. And even more importantly, we're given a hope because this meal symbolizes the great feast that is to come in heaven. So the question becomes, my friends, what is your hunger? What is your longing for? As you prepare yourself for the cup and for the, t the bread, 
Ask yourselves, what are the longings within you? What does it mean to long for Christ? Look, there's still lots of things I would love to have. Shopping is an inevitable part of our world. But there's a big difference between saying, hey, these are tools that we can use, instruments, versus these are ultimately things that will fulfill us and bring us peace. All the difference in the world. As it is with all things in this world. So my question is, do you hunger first and foremost for what Christ gives us by faith? We're gonna invite everybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ to partake of the, the, the communion with us. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we had asked that you not take of the elements, but rather we had asked that in your seat in this time, you would receive Jesus Christ by faith. Trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins. That when he died on the cross, there was nothing else to pay for our debts. And he rose again victorious over the, death, over the grave. He offers you new life. That can be yours today. But for those of us who are going to come and take, I want us to have a time of, of pause and reflection where we invite the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts to reveal the places where we have become slaves. Slaves to the appetites of the, the things that would call itself king over our world, whether that's our own financial ambitions, whether that's through our, our, our desires, whether and these can all be good things, but we've allowed them to become king in our life rather than Christ as our king. And its fruit is anxiety and fear and oppression. Take those to the Lord now. Bow your heads. Father, reveal these things to us. Where are the places in our lives that we're, we're wanting to be like everybody else and we're seeking to find our peace from that? Father, as the work of your spirit, enable Christ to become so beautiful, his peace and the identity that we have in him so wonderful that that's all we want, that's all we hunger for. Be with us now in these moments. In Jesus' name. I would invite all of you to go ahead and come. We have four stations, one here, here, and then there's two in the back. Go ahead and come, take the elements, take, the, take one of the, the, the crackers, one of the cups, and then go ahead and return to your seat. We'll take the elements together as a church. Come.
revealed what love is. He revealed how we would continue to celebrate that love, to remind ourselves, not just intellectually, but tangibly, of what he was doing for us. And so he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. We take this now in remembrance of him. same manner he took the cup he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood chant for many for the remission of sins we take this now in remembrance of him most gracious and loving father you are so good to us 
You have loved us so much that you have held not back even your son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing we could ever do to pay you back, to earn this. You haven't called us to. You've simply called us to trust you and allow your spirit to work in us. Change us now, Father. You've made us at peace with you. You've made us into a family, a body. Enable us to live that out and glorify you in Jesus' name. Friends, we have just celebrated that we've been made at peace with God. But the good news is, His grace is so glorious, it has made us at peace with one another. So one of the ways we celebrate that is by taking just a few moments to greet one another, welcome one another, shake one another's hand in the peace of Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled all as one body into one family through this great sacrifice and this great victory of Jesus Christ. Go now and greet one another in peace. We're all one. Now let's go ahead and move back to our seats as we close. Please stand as we finish singing.
glorious thing to look forward to. Hey, I want to thank all of you who came, all of you women who came to the women's uh, retreat yesterday, and especially thank you to all of you who helped. Uh, from what I understand, it was a great event, and I know so many people worked and was involved with that. I especially want to thank Jan and Penny, uh, Jan Long and Penny Fryman, who are the leaders, who did such a great job with that. Yeah, go ahead and give them a hand. And uh, I know they were tired yesterday, and so, but, you know, for... for you know, if, whether you went to the retreat or not, just know that there's more women's programming coming. In fact, there's a women's spring Bible study that is going to be starting on Wednesday nights, and that's going to begin March 22nd at 6.30, so that's meeting here on Wednesday night, and there's a Thursday morning Bible study at, uh, on starting the next day, March 23rd. It's the exact same study, it's just one's in the evening and one's in the morning during the day. At the one in the mornings at 9:30. Both of them at the church. There is childcare going to be provided for the Thursday morning study. So for the Thursday morning, um, if you've got kids at home, know that there's childcare provided. You can continue to please come. Also in that vein, there's a moms together uh, this Friday. So that is this Friday. So all you moms, uh, there is a moms together uh, on this Friday at 7 p.m. Uh, here at the church. Oh, also the women's Bible study, that's a sign-up, so if you could sign up for that there in the back. Okay, men, we also have opportunities for us to jump in, come together and serve. There is a work day where we're going to be doing a lot of, uh, yeah, they get to study, we get to work, but that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, March 25th, so that's not this Saturday, uh, nor is it the next Saturday, but it's, it's, it's the one after that. March 25th, at 9 a.m., and so we're going to be doing a lot of work together uh, starting at 9 a.m. Also, uh, don't forget, there in the back, we have ways that we're, we're collecting those resources for Tammy Chan's ministry, um, and um, so we're looking to do those kits that are there in the back. These are very simple items, things like toilet paper. Um, so great ways for you to be able to give. There's more information, cards that you can take that you can take with you to the grocery store. And we're gathering those uh, that we're going to all put it together uh, on our Easter festival on March 26th. So there's still information back there. Or just come ask us if you have any questions. Just as a reminder as well, if you want to come and you want to pray with me for any reason whatsoever, uh, we'd encourage you to do so. If you're a guest here, thank you for being here. Uh, If you haven't signed up or haven't gotten one of the First Samuel books, please make sure and do so as you leave. Know that, please, uh, we, we pray that you are ministered to in the name of Jesus Christ. And for all of us, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're dismissed.